And I can invite you, please, to stand in the reading of God's Word, Exodus 40, 33 through 38. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses's, Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. Next is John 1.1, page 1027. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory and the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And lastly, Luke 2, 25 through 33, page 993. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. We conclude this Sunday morning, our Advent series, Expecting Christ in Exodus. This is the time of year when we direct our attention to the birth of Christ as our Savior. And my prayer throughout this series has been that we would see Christ as those who saw Him for the first time described Him, that our hearts would be set on fire with the same ardor and affection for Him and for sharing Him with those who first encountered him. We began with the profound parallels that Matthew sees between the first redeemer, Moses, and the last, Christ. We saw Luke draw our attention in the song of Mary to how the Lord will reach out with an outstretched arm to save. Last Sunday, we saw that the death of Christ on the cross was prefigured before us in the striking of the rock in the wilderness as the Lord takes the blow For the sins of his people. This morning we turn our attention to the glorious conclusion of Exodus, where God tabernacles among his people, and we lean forward to the fulfillment of these things and for all the world in Christ. These are topics into which angels long to look, that the Lord will dwell among us in glory. The passages of Scripture that we just heard read may at first glance seem unrelated to each other and unrelated to Christmas, and yet they share a profound relationship. Christmas is a season of peace, the peace of Christ, and there is no greater gift 
than the gift of God's own indwelling covenant presence with us. I shared throughout this series a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said that there is a road in England in every little village that leads to London. And so it is the case that in every passage of Scripture there is a road that leads to Jesus Christ and we must take that road. I want this morning to give you the wider context into which this quote was originally given. It was a a young preacher and a young preacher gave up and he gave by quote of those who heard him. It was a grand sermon. It was a highfalutin spread eagle sermon. And when he finished preaching it, he came up to an elderly Welshman and said, what did you think of my sermon? And the elderly Welshman said, I didn't care much for it at all. And the young preacher was stunned and said, well, why not? And the elderly Welshman said, because there was no Jesus Christ in it. And it is at that point that the quote I've shared comes, that every passage has a road that goes to Christ The young man, still not knocked off of the high horse of the hubris of youth, said, well, what happens to me then if I have a scripture passage that does not seem to have a road to Christ? And the Welshman said, young man, I've been preaching for 40 years, and I've never found such a scripture. But if I ever think I did find one, I would go over hedge and ditch to find him that my master might be revealed. So it is our task, sacred this morning, to pursue the road, which in this case is well marked out. It is like a superhighway taking us to Christ. That the Lord will dwell among us in glory. We begin in Exodus 40. The great ending of Exodus is that God dwells with his people. Remember that redemption leads to relationship. Freedom from Egypt is for following the Lord. God takes us into covenant It's the realization of his promise at the burning bush that I have come down to save, to redeem you, take you into covenant, teach you my ways, and dwell among you as my people. Finally, at the end of Exodus, we read that after elaborate preparations have been made, that Moses sets up the courtyard around the perimeter, defining the sacred space of the tabernacle and altar. He places the curtain separating the entrance to the courtyard. We read that Moses finishes the work. That's a great line in the Bible. It's a line that I hope to be able to say on my last day in this world, that I finished the work that God has given me. It's a line that I want all of you to be able to say as well. I completed what God had given me to do. For those reading the Bible in Hebrew, this line jumps out at you because it echoes exactly Genesis 2-2, that the Lord completed or finished the work of creation. And so we see that this new creation is beginning in this plot in the wilderness, that God finishes his work. Moses completes the work that God had given him, and then the most remarkable thing happens, and that is that God himself actually comes and fills the sanctuary The cloud covers the tent. The glory of God filled the tabernacle. In language that is recalling Mount Sinai, the Lord is really there. Moses cannot enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of God's glory was so heavy there upon it. He had to wait until he was summoned, just like on the mountain, that the cloud of God was there for six days until the Lord called to Moses, come up to the mountain. Wouldn't it be great someday if someone 
came into the narthex at Kenwood and said, I can't quite make it into the sanctuary because the presence of God is so heavy there. I would love to hear that. You see, if God is not here, then the gathering has no meaning and no gravity and no purpose. But God said, I will meet with you and I will speak with you when you gather. And so the cloud covers the tabernacle and it is there in the sight of all the people the glory of God filling the sanctuary. And we were left with this enduring image of God physically present for real. You see, the God of the Bible is not absent, but present. It's not a symbolic presence. It's a real presence. Though God is visible, He is veiled, but His image and glory reflected in a man adorned with splendor. God, the Redeemer, King, Covenant, Lord, is really there dwelling among His people. And so we turn then to the New Testament with two complementary scenes to this great truth. The first scene is John's Christmas message. John is a master of brevity, and expressing deep truth in simple language. In the Gospel of John, the Christmas story is a single verse. The Christmas story in the Gospel of John is that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The divine Word, the agent of creation, became a human being. And He became a human being, and the world has never been the same. He didn't appear to be a human being. He really came as a human being. The God-man, the divine human, Lord Jesus Christ. He became flesh and blood to save flesh and blood like us. And the second half of this verse says in the NIV that he made his dwelling among us. And I scoured translations. I can't tell you how many I looked at. I used the languages I know, I searched, and most translations render this that he lived with us, or he dwelled with us, or he made his home among us, or Eugene Peterson says he moved into the neighborhood. And while these capture something that's real and true, they don't reflect the word that John actually chooses. The word that John chooses is literally that he tabernacled among us. The only one I could find that had this was Young's literal translation, a somewhat archaic version. And he renders this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, John wants us to see this connection between Christ in the flesh and the dwelling of God of old. We have seen his glory, the veiled Yet visible God of glory in Christ steps out from behind the veil and we see his glory and it is the glory of the one and only. It is the glory of one coming forth from the Father filled with grace and truth. You know, for many people, the incarnation of God is a scandal. There are many objections to the message of Christmas in the world today. Objections you can hear in coffee shops and cafeterias. Objections you can hear on television, YouTube, and 
in the hearts of men and women. Some of the objections are in here, in our own hearts and minds. I want to introduce you to a, a skeptic, an ancient skeptic named Celsus. He anticipates the modern objections to Christmas in many ways. And Celsus has two big objections to Christmas. The first is a philosophical objection. He says God, according to his thinking, cannot change. He's distant and remote from this world and knowable only by a few. He is the God of the philosophers, high, distant, and remote. The last thing he would ever do would be to make direct contact with this material world. Because his second objection to Christmas is that he lives inside a materialistic world where everything that is is just collisions of chemicals. He has a very low view of humanity. He says, with regard to humanity, there is no difference between the body of a bat, a maggot, or a frog. Just chemical substance. And this was illustrated dramatically this morning at Kenwood Baptist Church where Jerry Steiner found a dead bat at Kenwood. But he disposed of it. It was already dead and we were all safe. <laughs> but you see, Celsus' objection to Christianity, to Christmas, is that God is not in direct contact with this world and that all that really is in this world is just material substance. You see, that's why we need the Bible. That's why we need God to speak for himself. That's why Celsus needs the book of Exodus. Because in Exodus, God is a redeemer who is directly involved with this world. And he is not knowable by just a few, but he is knowable by all. You can be seven years old and know that Jesus Christ has taken on human flesh and died for your sins. You can be 87 years old and realize that for the very first time that Christ has come to save. You see, Celsus needs the book of Genesis that human beings, though they are made of real elements of this world, there is in fact a vast difference, hallelujah, between a bat, maggot, frog, and a human being. We learn in Scripture that human beings are made in the image of God. And what that means more than anything is not that you can say fancy words. It doesn't mean that you can do things. It doesn't mean you can play instruments or you can create art or write poetry or be a great athlete. Being in the image of God means fundamentally that you are created to know God and respond to Him in praise. And this is what it is to be a human being. We need the Old Testament to know Christ. Christopher Wright says, the deeper you go into the Old Testament, in fact, the closer you come to Jesus. The Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completes. The Old Testament declares the promise that he fulfills. The Old Testament provides the pictures and models which shape his identity. The Old Testament programs a mission which he accepts and passes on. It teaches a moral orientation to God and the world which Christ endorses, sharpens, and lays as the foundation of obedient discipleship. You see, when you're immersed in Scripture, Christmas makes sense. And oh, what a contrast there is 
between those immersed in Scripture and those who fashion gods after their own imagining. Between Calsus and those like him today and the figure that Luke introduces to us named Simeon. Simeon was an elderly man soaked in Scripture and God gave a promise to him. He was a righteous man, devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for God to finish the story that he began. God had given to this elderly man an extraordinary promise that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. And Simeon was moved by the Spirit. He went into the temple courts, the very place of God's dwelling. And he looked across the temple courts and he saw Mary and Joseph bringing in the child Jesus to make the offering of purification, to dedicate their firstborn son. And Simeon took the child in his arms and he praised God. And he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, dismiss now your servant in peace. This is the peace of Christmas. It's the peace in seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. Dismiss your servant in peace. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. The peace of Christmas is for all peoples. Not just a few. It's a gift that's been prepared from all eternity. You know, sometimes you receive a gift at Christmas time, and the gift is placed in a brown paper bag, doesn't even have your name on it. You reach in, it's not wrapped, the price tag is still on it, it's not your size. It's not your style. And you wonder incredulously as the person says, I really thought of you. You see, the gift giving, part of the love of the gift is in the preparation. Isn't it? It's your size. It's it's your style. It's wrapped. Your name is on the card. You're given full eye contact when it's handed to you. It's for you. And Simeon said, this is God's gift prepared from all eternity for you and for me. And as you open the gift of Christmas, Simeon sees the light. It's the light of a revelation, an unveiling of God for all nations and its glory for Israel. God's promise fulfilled, given to us in Christ that we may have life in Him and peace. The scene of Simeon's adoration of Jesus gripped the heart of Rembrandt, the great Dutch painter. The subject of Simeon's adoration formed the subject of a great painting which he executed at age 25. And in this painting, 
Rembrandt captures the adoration of Simeon holding the child Jesus in the temple courts. Even the high priest is raising his hand in blessing. Rembrandt was known as a painter of light, a master of light. How do you paint light? This is 400 years before Photoshop. And this is, there's nothing artificial about it. And the light is shining around the figure of Simeon and the infant redeemer king that he holds. Throughout his life, Rembrandt came back to the scene of Simeon's adoration of Jesus with drawings and other work. And the day after Rembrandt died, people came into his apartment And in his apartment, they found the last paintings that he was painting. And he returned again to the scene of Simeon. The paint was still wet. He was painting the scene again, now age 63, of Simeon holding the child born to save. He worked on the painting for months But he never finished it. Simeon in the painting is the embodiment of hope and longing for this promised Messiah, the Holy One to come. In the painting, Simeon holds the child. His eyes are closed. And he seems to be having a a vision, a foretaste of Christ's life, ministry, and death, and resurrection. Behind him stands the prophetess Anna in the shadow. And Simeon holds this child, and if you can look closely at his hands, underneath Jesus, his hands are in a posture of prayer. Here lies the most pivotal moment in the history. Simeon sees the Savior. He is here. The light shines on him in an atmosphere of sacred solemnity. Art historian Simon Shama says of this painting that it is illuminated by an almost unearthly brilliance. There he is. The Redeemer King is born. The good news of Christmas is the peace of Jesus Christ. If you have Christ, then you have this peace. A peace that is independent of your circumstances, that does not fade away. If you don't have Jesus Christ, though, the peace that you have is an illusion. It will fade away. It will not support you in a day of trial. But the peace of Christ remains. The peace of Christmas. It is this peace which is celebrated in the the carol Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners are reconciled. 
Joyful all you nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. My prayer for each of us this Christmas Sunday is that you would see him. And if you see him, that you would love him. And that you would embrace his radical vision for human living called the kingdom of God. And that you would enter into his covenant bond of hope, faith, love, and peace. And inside this covenant bond, God is present. He is there. And he is not absent. He will comfort you with his love and he will satisfy your desires with good things. He will teach you to walk in his ways and engage you with work that eternally matters. He will pick you up when you fall and guide you in his paths of peace. Is there any greater gift that the world has ever received? Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning, this Christmas Sunday. We sing, hallelujah, our infant redeemer is born. Lord, these are things into which angels long to look. We praise you, Father, that you have prepared this gift from eternity past. A gift of the peace of Christ. Christ with us. Emmanuel. Christ in us. The hope of glory. And we honor you this morning, Lord Jesus. And I pray this morning that the peace of Jesus Christ, which surpasses understanding, would flood and fill every heart even now. That in having him we have everything. And we join our voices with men and women and children from days gone by. Glory to the newborn king. Hallelujah. Amen.